the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's a Friday edition of the Dave Ellswick Show. Good to have you along with us. We've made it through the week. Another week of social distancing down. Just a few more weeks to go. We can do this. We're Americans. We're strong. And you know uh, that uh, Americans uh, are can-do and can get it done. Uh, Quick uh, note for the weekend. uh, Saturday at 9 a.m., uh, the car and truck doctors will be on live with me uh, at 9 o'clock. We'll talk to the guys from 9 to 10. I think it's Joe and David that will join me, and uh, we'll bring you up to date with all things uh, automotive. The main thing that we'll be pushing on Saturday is that the car and truck uh, car show, the car and truck car show, has been canceled. We want to make sure that you know that and you remember that. Uh, that's coming up uh, on the 30th, or was supposed to come up on the 30th, out there at the Conway uh, uh, get-together, and uh, it's just not going to happen uh, this year. Uh, coronavirus has thrown a wrench into a whole lot of stuff, so keep uh, that in mind. Uh I got a guy on with me that the last few times we've talked to him, we had to talk to him when he was in Washington, D.C., because he'd been working in Washington. And all of those uh, guests, those great guests that I was getting on, was because of him. I would call or he would email me and say, hey, Dave, this person's available, that person available. And, of course, a lot of times I would say, well, I know they're available, but how about this person? Are they available? And he'd go out and look and talk to the right people. And about, uh, I would say, about 70% of the time we'd end up with that special guest that all of us uh, wanted to hear from. We got one of those going on right now with the uh, with Will Gale, who has taken uh, this guy's face. Seth May's back in Arkansas. How's it feel to be back in the uh, the uh, natural state and away from the unnatural city of uh, Washington D.C. Man. Well, good morning, Dave. It feels great, although a, a, quite a little strange as well, as you can understand with yeah. all the given circumstances. I picked uh, just the right time to try and move across the country and uh, <laughs> all the craziness that's going on. So did you, uh, like, hook up a U-Haul trailer behind your uh, car and put your stuff in it and pull it across to uh, the states and bring them back to Arkansas? Is that what went down? 
I loaded my truck up to the very top. I've got a cover on the back, and it was one of those where you had to jump on top of it to lock it, you know, to push everything down. But <laughs> I made it out last Friday, and then I was actually staying in Virginia just across the river. And as you may have heard, the governor there did a stay-at-home order all the way through June 10th, I believe, was his advisory effective immediately this Monday. So I picked uh, just the right day to get out of town. Yeah, I wanted to talk to you about that because, you know, Governor Hutchinson hasn't issued any kind of order here in Arkansas. He has a couple of times, uh, you know, been leaning that way, but he's never done it. And he thinks that Arkansans are smart enough to understand uh, what we're supposed to do. And they tell us, you know, the social distancing rules and stay in home and that kind of stuff. Work from home if you can. But when you look at the uh, the orders that other governors have put out, and I think it's like 37 states now, uh, when you look at their orders, what we're doing here in Arkansas without a governmental order to do it, we're doing basically the same thing. Right. Right. No, you're absolutely correct. And one thing I would note, when you see those maps on social media that show all these states colored in and then Arkansas and Iowa and the Dakotas and Nebraska aren't colored in, it makes it seem as though those states aren't doing anything. And, of course, if you if you live in Arkansas, you know that simply isn't true, that many of those high-contact businesses be it tattoo parlors and nail technicians, places to get your hair cut, restaurants that have shifted to takeout. Uh, you, you know that we've, we've really taken a number of steps, and we've taken them pretty early on. Another thing about those maps that is a little misleading is you see some states that are shaded in a particular color and not fully colored in. Well, what does that mean? Does that mean they're taking some steps? And what that means is that those states have maybe issued stay-at-home orders for a county. So Florida did their stay-at-home order for the whole state effective yesterday, but they had been colored in for a while because the populous Miami-Dade counties, those types, were already under orders. So once again, like I I said, Governor Hutchinson has taken a number of high-contact steps to, to draw back on our contact in the state. And in effect, if you listen to his conference yesterday, again, with Dr. Nate Smith, who's both have done a fantastic job every day of of giving straight facts and answering all the questions, you heard them say, we're not just going to do this order because other governors are doing it. We're not in a contest with other states. We're in a contest with ourselves. And if you look at our projections, we're beating them. Yeah. Yeah, we're doing well. The governor has done very well. The uh, the legislature, the county governments, everybody has pulled together, and we're doing really well here uh, in uh, Arkansas. In fact, when you rank Arkansas in the number of cases and number of deaths, I think we're number of deaths we're like at twelve right now. Uh, when you look at that across the board, uh, you're looking at. Uh, We're number 32 out of 50 states right now, and it's good to be in the higher numbers, not in the lower numbers. If you're one, two, or uh, just through, I would say, the top 20, that's not the place you want to be, and we're nowhere even close to it. Right, and another thing on our projections, those projections were made when our testing capabilities were lower than they are today. Now, the governor and the secretary will both tell you, of course, 
in an ideal world, we could offer everybody a test right now immediately, but that's not the world we live in. But our testing capabilities have gotten better since our projection, and we're still under it. Say that we had crossed our projection, we could at least say, well, the projection was made when our testing capabilities were low, but they are better today. And we're, we're still bending the curve here in Arkansas. It's a day-by-day uh, thing that you have to check out. But as the governor said in his conference yesterday, the team will continue to do that. And any steps that they think will help us bend the curve, we will make them. Like you saw the Buffalo uh, National River be closed and those sorts of steps. Whenever we see a problem like overcrowding and people not following the proper social distancing, then we will uh, take those recommendations and follow up with actions related to those specifically. Yeah, I got to tell everybody, Seth May is our guest. He has come back from Washington, D.C., just so people will know exactly what you were doing, uh, Seth. Why don't you talk about what your job was in D.C. and then talk about what your new job is now back here in uh, in Arkansas. Sure. So in D.C., I had worked for the Republican National Committee, specifically for our Division of Media Affairs, which, as Dave noted at the top of the show, is responsible for working with radio and TV, obviously the national outlets, but then uh, we give a lot of love to our regional folks as well with getting them surrogates related to news of the day, obviously today that's coronavirus, but in the past it can be any number of things from debates and town halls and rallies that the president does to the numbers on the economy to RNC fundraising numbers. And so getting them the right guest and the talking points is necessary of what the top line numbers are for those issues. And now I'm with the Republican Party of Arkansas here in Little Rock. Uh, And my uh, official title is senior political director. Obviously, we're engaged with all of our state races, state reps, state senate races, as well as our congressional races. We've always, every cycle, got to keep a close eye on our good friend French Hill and make sure that he gets reelected. But in addition to those political duties, there's also a fair amount of communications uh, duties. And, And still, here I am working with Dave Ellswick, no matter no matter where I am, Washington or Little Rock, uh, always, always happy to work with Dave. Well, you know, Seth, you you have been uh, a worker bee for years now with the GOP. Uh, let's just run through some of the things you did. I mean, when you started appearing on my show was when you were uh, head of the college Republicans, correct? That's right. I first met you at CPAC in 2017. Uh-huh. Just a month or so after the president's inauguration, I was walking around with uh, Darren Waddles, the former chair, who I was <laughs> up in had, Stone had County against. now. Yes, yes, and I had actually run against Darren to become chair, but that just shows you how in the Republican Party of Arkansas we could work through that. Darren said, "Hey, I've got a guy named Dave. He's here broadcasting at Radio Row." Why don't I send him a text and see if we can't both go on together? And sure enough, we did and had a great conversation there at CPAC, and the energy was just through the roof. But that's why I started as the college Republicans chair for the state and did that for two terms. And then I think because of that and because of the work in the party, the governor's campaign took note, and I was hired on while still in college, but full-time. I was able to finish my courses at Arkansas Tech online 
and moved to Little Rock full-time in 2018 to work for the governor on his re-election campaign. And then when that came to an end, as naturally election campaigns do in November, I looked to move to D.C., which was something I never thought I would do, but the opportunity was there. And I thought, well, you know, you don't want to get down the road and wish that you had taken a big leap like that. And so I jumped on that at the start of what was last year and was there for almost a year to the date. And then this opportunity was open here at the state party, and now I'm back. Well, you, you you know, I think that you just wanted to get back to get some good barbecue is what it was all about. I'm sure the barbecue in D.C. is not as good as what you find here in Arkansas. <laughs> you would be correct. And a home-cooked <laughs> meal here never hurts as well. You're right. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Seth is going to be with us here for uh, the hour. We're going to talk with him. He'll have some insights for us because he is the senior political director. So he's expected to know everything about every race that's going on in Arkansas. So we'll put him to the test today. Are you ready to take the test today, Seth? I'm ready, Dave. All right. We'll take a break. We'll come back with more. We got uh, your traffic and your weather. Let's get to that today. Rainy, a thunderstorm possible, and a high of 68. It's the Dave Ellswick Show at 101.1 FM, The Answer. All right, so Carlton Wing, who is the state representative over in North Little Rock, you should uh, like him on Facebook because he's keeping you up to date on what's going on with uh, the governor's uh, press conferences that he's having. He had one yesterday. Let's just kind of run over what Carlton uh, made uh, note of for us and uh, here's his notes uh, from yesterday's press conference we have 643 total positive cases for covid19 right now in the state Uh, there's two new deaths we're up to a total of 12 there are 66 people hospital hospitalized and 23 are on ventilators the governor spent a really good bit of time and i watched this too uh, answering the many uh, uh, in- inquiries that were out about the merits of a shelter-in-place order. And uh, I believe the shelter-in-place has worked uh, well. Now, I tend to call it uh, hunker-in-place because, uh, you know, that way you could say that our HIP orders, we're being HIP right now, uh, are, are really good. And if you just hunker down, you're going to be cool. Uh, don't don't go around people if you don't have to. Stay at home uh, and and do what you're going to do at your, at your home or uh, for businesses out there, restaurants being closed down, although they will uh, give you, a, a, you know, you can pick up your orders at restaurants. Some restaurants are offering even free delivery at this time. Uh, The shelter-in-place order is largely an illusion that you're seeing. We talked a little bit about this, Seth and I did, just a few minutes ago. States that have them have exempted essential activities like manufacturing, outdoor stores, banks, hardware, laundromats, legal, county services, insurance, farmers, markets, etc. Even states with SIP orders have millions of people still getting up and going to work. If, if Arkansas, if the governor ordered a shelter in place today, and this would have been yesterday, but if he had said yesterday, I'm going to have everybody shelter in place, and he had those abilities to move around still in that order, uh, this morning 700,000 Arkansans, 
Arkansans would have been on their way to work. And we could also have an additional 200,000 not able uh, to go to work. Uh, The current executive orders are stricter in some cases than states with SIP orders, depending on their uh, exemptions. Dr. Nate Smith, uh, the Secretary of Arkansas Department of Health, uh, gave us the following. He gave a breakdown of the 643 cases, 20 are children, 440 people aged 18 to 64, 183 people ages 65 plus. Of those 643 people, uh, 66 are hospitalized, 23 are on ventilators, 51 are from nursing homes, 47 people have recovered, and 91 are health care workers. Health care workers uh, uh, that are in there, uh, those are the people we want to make sure have the the high uh, tolerance masks and things of that nature because what we don't need is a whole lot of you know sick health care workers uh, on shelter in place what does that exactly mean uh, it doesn't mean that everyone is going to be really staying at home in such a declaration uh, what's being tried to be accomplished is they're trying to flatten the curve of how many people are being affected uh, by the, uh, the virus no state with a SIP is on the downside of this. Our rate of growth, by the way, is doing better than most states with an SIP. Uh, Data is still inconclusive of whether stay-in-place orders are working. The Secretary, Wendy uh, Kelly, Department of Corrections, I know I have gotten several questions, several emails from people about uh, uh, what's going on with our prisons. Well, the prisons have stopped in-person visitation that started Back on March the 12th, or 16th, pardon me, March 16th, uh, they've lowered phone, video, and email rates so the inmates can continue their visitation that way. Parole and probation fees have been waived for April. Arkansas Correctional Industries are making cloth masks for inmates and staff. And uh, this, I thought, was amazing. Uh, No inmates have tested positive yet for COVID-19. One staff member tested positive, but they don't work in a facility and have no contact with any of the inmates. So that's the the breakdown for you about what went on yesterday. And Seth, that last part I thought was really amazing that we haven't had anybody within the prison system of Arkansas come down positive with COVID-19 and they're being tested. That's pretty amazing. It really is. On your first note there, if anybody wants these updates and you're not able to watch the governor's press conferences around 1.30, check your local state rep or state senators' Facebook pages. They've all done a pretty good job of giving readouts like that daily, bullet points of of what exactly the numbers are and all the new information. But to your point, it is really amazing because you know once one inmate tests positive, the chances are a number of other inmates already have it as well, and you're going to have an outbreak. That's what we've seen around the country. And so when I first, when we first heard the, the news a day or so ago that there was somebody 
working in the Department of Corrections that had tested positive, there was a sort of an uh oh moment, you know, is this where it starts? But uh, like you said, uh, Secretary Kelly uh, said that this person had no direct contact. I don't know if maybe they were a maintenance person, a groundskeeper of, of sorts, but that would just be speculative. But we know that they have no direct contact with inmates. So that was reassuring to hear. But like you say, it, it is surprising at this point, given how far it has spread. All right, and Seth, can, I got to join. Said, I got to jump in. Keep your thoughts to yourself. We'll be right back after the news. Well, welcome back. Uh, Dave Ellsworth with you. I'm at my house. I have been doing my uh, my bit to do my social distancing. I'm sitting in my uh, dining room right now doing the show. Uh, if you're watching on Facebook Live, you're looking at an empty studio right now. Uh, because I'm at home. Seth is talking to us. Where are you here in Little Rock? Don't give me your address. Uh, are you, have you got a place to stay now? Well, I actually landed with some family over in Mansfield, about 30 miles south of Fort Smith. And okay. since I uh, traveled across the country, I'm in, I guess, self-quarantining for a couple of weeks just to make sure. I didn't come into contact with anybody, but that's the advice they give when traveling state lines. Okay, so you're sitting... Uh, over in Fort Smith, south of Fort Smith. And uh, Heidi, our producer, is back in the studio running all of this and trying to keep her sanity while she keeps us under control. Uh, they they brought up the idea of masks here just a moment ago. We heard Mike Gallagher saying he was going to talk about masks, and it's been a big, a big question mark for everyone. But according to uh, uh, some answers we got about masks here just recently, uh, according to, is it Dr. Bricks? Is that her name? Is that how she pronounces her name? Burks. Mm-hmm. Burks. Okay. Dr. Burks uh, made the statement that she'd rather people not wear masks just because it gives them a false sense of security. For instance, uh, th- this is a psychological uh, thing I don't know what the exact term is. I read a, I've read several articles about it. But when you do things that supposedly make people safer, they they show more unsafe behavior. For instance, in cars, when they came out with seatbelts, people drove faster. Uh, and then when they came out with uh, the airbags. People drove even more unsafely because you feel like the the seatbelt's going to save or the the airbag's going to save you. Here we got the mask, and if everybody's wearing a mask, everybody says, "Well, I can maybe get closer to that person and talk to them, and don't have to worry about getting infected." And that's not the case. Secondly, if you don't wear the mask correctly, you can still get infected. Thirdly, if you put on the mask and you go to you know, rearrange it on your face, and you, let's say you touch up by your eyes, the virus can get into your body through your eyes. So uh, they, it sounded to me that Burks was saying, uh, yeah, sure, uh-huh, but let's not do it. <laughs> yes, but no. You know, yeah, part of that is, 
Yeah, part of that is just logistics. We don't have enough masks currently to just hand one to every American. But it, like you said, it creates this false sense of security that you can get out on the town. You've got a mask, so you're protected. But then you're constantly readjusting it because you're not used to wearing one. And so it, your face contact actually increases because you're wearing a mask, not it decreases. And so, yeah, it just puts you in a place where you think you're doing something right. But in fact, it, you may not be. It may be the opposite. Yeah, and and I go along with that whole psychological thing. I think if, first of all, it's not like you have a mask and you keep it and you use it every day because it doesn't work that right. way. Uh, yep. You've got to change that mask several times a day, in fact, and discard it. So you're going to need multiple masks uh, throughout your day. You can use bandanas. Here's the key. Uh, If you're let's say you're amongst your family and you're all, you know, hunkering down in place, you know, you're being hip, you're doing what you're supposed to do. If you sneeze or if you cough, uh, if there's a member of your family that doesn't uh, uh, cough into their shoulder or sneeze into their or into their elbow, uh, then probably the head of the household, whether it be the mom or the dad or both of them are going to whack Johnny upside the back of the head or their husbands or wives in the back of the head and say, don't do that. You don't want to put that stuff airborne. Cover your mouth. How many times did we hear that from our mothers when we were younger? I know I heard it a lot from my mom. If you got the sneeze and the sniffles and the coughs, it was cover your mouth. Now, they're a little bit more uh, specific now, cover your mouth with your, in your elbow or whatever, not with your hand. Or if you want to carry a, a handkerchief, you can carry a handkerchief. But no, you got to wash that handkerchief often and then dry it to make sure it's uh, disease-free. I mean, that's just normal stuff, wouldn't you th- think, Seth? Yeah, and that's what I hope of the lessons that we take from this. You know, everybody talks about how will this change life going forward or what are the things that will stay with us hopefully some of these basic hygiene things about washing your hands or coughing into your elbow on your arm those sorts of things you know i I was somebody if i went to the supermarket i would just grab the cart and just go and you know pass the disinfectant wipes it just seems like an extra step yeah might make it a little sticky at first but hey that's something that i may give a second thought now in the future because i lived through covid19 you know So I hope we take some of those hygiene things with us. Yeah, I definitely have been using those hygiene wipes a a lot in the past, and now I'll use them even more in the future. And uh, whenever I grab, go to grab a cart, I think I think they should put the uh, the the, uh, antiseptic wipes outside with the cart, so you can grab one before you grab the cart. So you got that. That uh, thing between your hand and the cart before you even make any contact whatsoever. Well, we've got about uh, about three minutes before we normally break. I'm going to go ahead and break early because I want to come back and I want to talk to you a little bit about the races across the state, where you see uh, you're going to have your eyes open to see if uh, the Republican supermajority is going to hold or even expand. Uh, Talk about some of these races that went down 
uh, over the primary that were pretty contentious and have those uh, rifts been healed already? We'll talk about all of that when we come back. Uh, Seth May is with us, senior political director uh, for the Republican Party of Arkansas. That's all coming your way now on the Dave Ellswick Show, 101.1 FM, The Answer. All right, back uh, talking now specifically about uh, some of the different races we had during the primary season and uh, have the rifts uh, already started to heal because it's not been that long since we had the primary. And so uh, let me ask you about this, Seth. Uh, I would say the number one most contentious race in the state was the Sullivan-Cooper race up there in Jonesboro. And it was really uh, contentious. A lot of money was spent on that race. A lot of things were said. Uh, I've had Dan Cooper, uh, pardon me, I've had Dan Sullivan on my show since the race. And he seems like uh, he's letting bygones be bygones. But he won. I haven't heard from John Cooper. What are you hearing from the Jonesboro uh, area? Are the people doing a good job at being able to move beyond that race and and solidify behind Dan Sullivan? You know, Dave, I, I think they are. And Jonesboro and that whole northeast Arkansas area are really emerging to be the conservative hotbed of the state. It's you well know for many years that was always the third district. Northwest Arkansas was where uh, the Republican cause was, but that's really spreading out a lot into South Arkansas too, but into Northeast Arkansas. And you know, at the end of the day, it comes down to who's on the ballot. And I think for conservatives, Dan Sullivan is is obviously the clear choice there. And he'll it'll be a fine state senator for Jonesboro. And so I think, you know, those things obviously get heated in the moment leading up to an election. But at the end of the day, the results are what the results are. And I think people will come around uh, and those those things will mend themselves. Uh, I know there was a contested House race. Uh, in northwest Arkansas, Janet De La Rosa, who had, yep. has had an opponent the last few cycles and, in fact, made it to the runoff this time with Kendon Underwood, who ran against her in the last cycle. And he ended up winning, I believe, 55 to 45 this time. And she already on Facebook was very conciliatory and, and wished him well and said he'll do a, a great job for Republicans in the GOP. So I think time will heal all these wounds. And I'm not not too worried about our our standing in those particular races in the fall. Okay, so so Seth, answer me this: You've been gone for a year. You've come back now. You've been self quarantined. I understand because you did all this traveling. But uh, with the people that you're talking to, uh, the Republican Party over the last let's say six years seems to slowly be moving towards a more conservative uh, Republican Party, maybe not in uh, uh, monetary policy yet, but I believe that that's coming. Uh, do, Do you believe that that's happening across the state with the people now that are running for offices Uh, in the Republican Party that we're seeing the movement that a lot of people thought we'd see maybe earlier on, but now it's coming a little later that we're going to see a a much more conservative brand of republicanism here in the state of Arkansas? 
Sure, I think so. And part of that is, as you well know, a Republican was quite rare in this state, really up until 2010 when we swept congressional races and the General Assembly. And then later, of course, in 2014, all of the constitutional offices from land commissioner to governor. And so I think it's been in the works for a while now. We were just in a period of t- a period of time wandering in the wilderness trying to win a majority then we got super majorities and so i think that shift is is quite natural and when you look at the two platforms for the candidates when you just look at what the candidates espouse in public and on their social media platforms i think it, it's quite clear if you're a conservative in arkansas the days of being a conservative democrat are are pretty far behind us now and conservatives have a home in the Republican Party of Arkansas. Yeah, what 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 are your thoughts about the Democrats? You know, it used to be the Republicans would run as a Democrat uh, to even have a chance in a race. Now it's just the opposite. If you're a Democrat, you run as a Republican. Are these people that are changing from Democrat to uh, Republican, are, are they strong conservative Republicans, or are they more of a, uh, a weak sister, would you say? Well, I would say that for many of, of our Kansans, they don't particularly pay attention to what they identify as as a political party. And so many of them have been conservative people. They certainly live their lives in that fashion, but they just vote for Democrat because that's what daddy did and his daddy. And we're Democrats. I remember this was a nonpartisan race, the Supreme Court race that was settled last month. There was an exchange on Capitol View where it was pointed out that Uh, Circuit Judge Chip Welch had run as a Democrat, and his excuse was, well, I ran as a Democrat because there were no Republicans, which I'm not really sure was a good answer if you're trying to defend yourself as an independent voice that you just did what everybody else was doing. But, hey, that was true decades ago. Everybody was a Democrat. When Mike Huckabee was governor, there were like eight Republicans in the General Assembly, you know, so – uh, I think the times have been different, but I think the voters have, have pretty well remained conservatives on their own. And I think the choice just gets clearer and clearer. And, hey, this summer, when you look at the DNC and the Arley being a week or two away, you're really going to get a clear picture of what the differences in the party are. Okay, so your thoughts. I talked to uh, to Doyle yesterday about this particular issue, and that's uh, the the conventions that are coming up. Uh, the Democrats have not called their convention off. They've moved it till August. Do you believe they did that because of COVID-19, or do you think that they did that to try to find uh, within another an extra month some kind of uh, magic potion that to get the Democrats excited about uh, Joe Biden? Well, it could certainly give the draft Cuomo movement an extra extra month or two to find out what they want to do. Here, Dave, is the story nobody is talking about right now, but will be a big issue in a couple of months. The DNC is in Milwaukee. Tom Perez, the chairman, has stated not all of the delegations will be staying in hotels in Milwaukee. Not quite half, but close to it, will actually be staying across the border in Illinois for hotels. And a number of those, a baker's dozen, will be staying at O'Hare-related hotels. 
meaning that they are 80 miles away from downtown Milwaukee. As the Democrats move their convention back with a candidate, Joe Biden, who can't talk for more than eight minutes on any stage, with an underfunded convention, they're actually planning this in two metro areas, in two states, and those governors may have different orders as it relates to COVID by the time we get to that convention. So I don't know that many people have realized just how in a pinch the DNC is going to be, but they can't house everybody in Milwaukee, and they've known that from the beginning. But nobody's talking about that. Understandably, there's plenty to talk about in our daily lives, but that is going to be, I I think train wreck could be an understatement by the time that we get there. Well, if... It looks like it's it's going to be Biden, uh, although there might be somebody that rises uh, from the shadows. And, uh, you know, Como's name has been has been uh, bantied about like a tennis ball here the last few weeks. But, uh, you know, I, I look at this. What are uh, the, the the fervent followers of our, uh, you know, uncle socialist uh, going to think, uh, are they going to take to the streets in Milwaukee, do you think? Well, it depends, I guess, if we're allowed to be in the streets by that time. But, no, I think that, listen, there's been plenty of polling to suggest up to a quarter of Bernie voters could find themselves voting for Trump in the general election. I think if you look at the way the establishment, so to speak, really rallied around Joe Biden coming out of South Carolina, not even trying to hide how much they didn't want Bernie to be the nominee. That was that was Mayor Pete and Senator Klobuchar's main argument was, hey, we don't want this guy to be our nominee. I think some voters are going to feel disaffected and they're, they're going to say, hey, this is 2016 all over again. They didn't want us then. They didn't want us now. And so I think the crossover vote will be higher uh, uh, this time than it was in 2016. Okay, so as we move into the, uh, you know, the uh, uh, the election itself, when the Democrats finally decide who it is they're going to put up against Trump, you know, a lot of people say, well, they're going to go after Trump as far as COVID-19. I mean, we're seeing some of that from the left already. They're getting ready to kind of start impeachment hearings about COVID-19 uh, with uh you know, uh, uh, shift and in, in Pelosi thought, talking already. Uh, it just makes me wonder how the American people are going to respond to that when more and more uh, Americans, over sixty percent now, think that the the president is doing an an admirable job uh, with cor- uh, the COVID nineteen outbreak. Yeah, I think you're right. Like you cited there, Gallup shows 60 percent of Americans approve of the president's handling of this pandemic and still around 51, 52 percent approve of him individually. So what does that tell you? That tells you that independent voters who may not like the president, may not like the tweets, may not end up voting for him, still give him a a, a good grade on his handling of this which I think is is quite reassuring that this can't be used as a bludgeon come the general election. The president, since the China ban, has been on top of this, taking the actions that are necessary to slow the spread. Well, you know, Karl Rove was on uh, Fox yesterday, and I know there's a lot of Karl Rove detractors out there. I might, I'm not a really big Karl Rove fan, but he's got a pretty good ear for politics, and he talked about... 
uh, Biden's team and how tone deaf they were in how they attacked the president about uh, the COVID-19 virus and the way the president has been handling this. He said the American people don't want to listen to that kind of partisanship. They want to hear uh, that you'll work with the president and get this taken care of. Uh, Yeah, I think you're exactly right. And I think it's been pretty clear when you see the negotiations in this last package from Congress that the Democrats are willing to play politics with this, Uh with the Kennedy Center and their wish list of of goodies. They are willing to throw out there whatever they can. And, well, if we can if we can do something for the American people at the end, that'll be fine. But let's see what we can check off of our box here. And I think that only drives up the president's approval numbers on his handling of this because his his top line is pretty clear what's best for the american people and with it with a message like that it's, it's hard to see how that isn't a winning message going into november well seth it's great to have you back in the state uh, when you can get out and you get here to little rock or whatever and we're able to do the Dave Ellswick Show back in studio again. I expect that you'll make your way to the studio and uh, be part of the show quite often since you're now the senior political director for the uh, Arkansas Party here in uh, Arkansas. And I, I, I'm glad to have you back, brother. You're a valuable asset to us here in Arkansas. Well, thank you so much, Dave, for having me this morning, and I look forward to joining you in that studio once we get back to our new normal. Well, we'll get back to the normal. Just hang in there, brother. You have a great day. I'll talk to you right down the road. We might still have to do it on phone, but we'll talk. I can guarantee it. Thanks so much. Local politics are big here on the Dave Ellswick Show. Seth May, who is the new senior political director for the Arkansas Republican Party. We've got the news coming up, five minutes of news for you. Then Robert Steinbach is going to join us. Did you know, this is something not being uh, reported very uh, 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 loudly out there in the press. Robert wants to talk about it. The CIA is out trying to find the real numbers of what's going on with the COVID-19 virus in China. We know they're lying. We just don't know how big the lie is, and they're trying to figure it out. We're going to talk about that and a whole lot more coming up on the Dave Ellswick Show. Friday edition, last show of this week. You'll actually have to go a full weekend without my show uh, helping you know everything that is happening uh, with coronavirus and everything else important in the world. Uh, We'll be back on Monday, never forget that, at 6 a.m. And Ken Yang will join us on Monday and uh, give us insight 
about what's going on in the world of politics as well, because this is a political year. I don't need to tell you that. A big time. I mean, we're all zeroing in on uh, uh, coronavirus and uh, you know COVID-19 and all the rest. But whether we like it or not, come November, there is a presidential election that will happen. And it will not only, uh, uh, you know, set up how the power will be in the White House, but also in the House and in the Senate. So uh, those are important uh, things to keep in mind. I think we can all be pretty uh, sure that here in Arkansas, we're going to stay red uh, as far as the national races go. And we're going to stay red as the state races go, unless some big black swan event uh, happens again during the course of this year. Well, Robert Steinbach is joining us. Robert is, uh, of course, a law professor over at UALR and the Bowen School of Law. His opinions are his and his alone, not necessarily those of the university or the school of law. But he's with us, and he sent me several stories. The first one I found really, really interesting. I like how, uh, well, I didn't like it. I'm I'm saying it that with full uh, tongue-in-cheek. Uh, the New York Times, which uh, Robert still reads, so I get to know at least once a week what some of their big stories are. Uh, but let me just start off reading this article that they wrote. Uh, the CIA has been warning the White House since at least early February. See, that's that's starting the story off with a negative feel towards the White House. But anyway, since at least early February that China has vastly understated its uh, coronavirus infections and that its count could not be relied upon as the United States compiles predictive models to fight the virus that according to current and former intelligence officials. The intelligence briefings in recent weeks, based at least in part on information from the CIA assets in China, played an important role in President Trump's negotiations on Thursday of an apparent detente with the president of China, since uh, both countries have ratcheted back criticism of uh, each other. So I'm, I'm not going to read any more of that uh, uh, article, uh, Robert, because you can feel the negative undertones towards the president in the first two paragraphs. But uh, I think we've known even before that. I mean, Tom Cotton knew it before the New York Times knew it, that you couldn't trust the Chinese. Here's the way I've always felt. Once a communist, always a communist, and you can't trust the commies. You never have been able to trust the communists. They're out for world domination, whether they say they are or not, whether the left believes they are or not, whether even independents believe they are or not. The, the end game for Chinese communists, Russian Chinese, uh, Russian uh, communists, Cuban communists, whatever communists out there there are, is that they want to exert their influence on everybody. Dave, you uh, well articulated, your audience well knows that the communist Chinese government is a totalitarian government. And therefore, you can't trust anything they say. To be clear, no, you can't. That doesn't mean, right? That doesn't mean that everything they say is false. It would be better if it were, because then we would know just to think the opposite. Right. But they mix 
truth with falsehoods all the time. And so for things like, oh, well, we've taken care of the virus, the press for some time, they've now finally scaled back, for some time they said, oh, well, it's going down in China. It's going, oh, how do you know? Oh, well, they told us. Wait, what? Wait, what? Yeah. It's just so absurd that we at all paid attention to what the Chinese government was telling us. And finally, I'm talking about the press, by the way, there was never any claim by the government uh, that they believed the numbers coming out of China. But finally, the press has started to swing around. When interestingly, a few days ago, I saw an article in the New York Times, as you mentioned in the lead-in, uh, I still read the New York Times. I've also posted on my uh, Twittergram, as I like to call it. Uh, from time to time, I will post uh, a um, New York Times to English dictionary. You know, I'll take the words of the New York Times and I'll convert it to English. And <laughs> one exa- right? And so, sort of at a meta level, one example is they make every presumption against the president, even in the language that they use. Yes. Uh, But when it comes to China, there was an article that said something to the effect of uh, China reports the numbers are going down. Uh, Is it accurate? Question mark. Wait, what? (laughs) Is it accurate? Everything we know is that it's not accurate. So that's just one of the more subtle distinctions. Meaning, when they reported on the president, there's no question mark. It's it's quite literally headlines like the president is telling falsehoods or even lying when they found some piece of data. By the way, that was ambiguous, not even clearly in error. So it's just this general presumption against the president. But the point that I'm bringing up with the article is not the clear bias by the New York Times and many other media outlets against the president, the point that I'm bringing up is the fact that the the numbers regarding the coronavirus, and by the way, various other things from the Chinese government, simply aren't to be trusted. Meaning, they could be right. The same way if you put a bunch of random numbers in a hat and pulled them out and said, is this the number of coronavirus deaths in China or anywhere else? They could be right. The odds are just really low, aren't they? So it's... It just highlights that fact. Yeah, it, it, I just read those first two uh, paragraphs because uh-huh. you, know, you made the point, and it's a great point to be made, is that the media reports this stuff, and it's as if the president should have been believing everything that, uh, or not believing what the, the Chinese said because his intelligence people were telling him not to believe it. So why? And and the, the auspices of that is that he was believing it. No, By they the way, weren't. Uh, re- yeah, and relatedly, Dave, remember, it, it's not that far long ago when Trump, relatively early on in the process, cut off air traffic from China. And who complained? The liberals. The left, uh-huh. I should say, to be more accurate, right? Uh, uh, Dennis Prager does a good job of distinguishing between liberal people who are somewhat misguided in some of their philosophy and leftists, people who are downright dangerous. So I should be more careful in my distinction as well. Nonetheless, who criticized it? The left. And quite literally, you saw de Blasio and Pelosi 
one from each coast, by the way, it just dawns on me, saying, oh, you should go out, go to Chinatown. They specifically mentioned going to Chinatown. Now, why <laughs> would you mention going to Chinatown versus going to, for example, in uh, certainly no New York, Little Italy, or uh, to uh, Greek Town, or any other uh, local uh, area that is denominate not denominate populated by a particular group why sure because they they were trying to make the claim uh, not so subtly that trump was wrong to suggest that we should cut off travel to china and well let's not for, that, don't so, forget Bi- biden himself called him a xenophobe yeah, exactly. That's exactly the right point, Dave, that the claim about cutting off China had nothing to do with the virus. It was about racism, racism. Yep. You can hear it yep. ringing in your head like a clarion call from the left. And so the irony is that th- these people were wrong, the leftists, twice over. They were wrong to tell people to continue to go out. By the way, just to be fair... Both the left and the right were slow to tell people not to go out. I understand it, but being a germaphobe myself, I started, I started social distancing about 35 years ago, right? So, um, yeah, you know, uh, the, the good thing about when people say, well, you know, maybe you don't like uh, to uh, go to Chinatown because you're afraid to get the Wuhan virus, and my response would be, no, I don't like to go anywhere because I don't want to catch any virus, right? So, but the, and that's the, the truth. The, Look, you started social distancing before social distancing was cool. I'm just saying. That's right. Exactly. I need to get a T-shirt. I started social distancing before social distancing was cool. I love it. That's love right. It. And on the back, I can write misanthrope, which, of course, as you well know, means you don't like any people, right? I'm going that to start a, a great shirt, of brother. misanthropes, Dave, by the way, but nobody's going to show up, right? You get the joke. Yeah, that's it. Nobody will yeah. show up. You're exactly, yeah. you're exactly right. But, you know, when you look at and this is something because we – we who are baby boomers, we went through the Cold War, and we think that it's over. No, it's not. It, it is as hot today as it has been since uh, the, the, the Soviet Union fell, and uh, now we got Russia. They're, they're, they want to push communism just as hard as, as everybody, and the Chinese have never slowed down in pushing communist thought. Never. Mao well, be, of course, the would, Chinese have is taken in his over. grave is glad. You know, Mao is glad that they're doing what they're doing. Yeah, the, the, the Chinese have taken over as the world communist power when Russia ceased on paper to be communist. Uh, I say on paper because they really were a, a, a moving towards a capitalist design, and now they're just a corrupt Chrissy, right? They're just uh-huh. corruption um, uh, embodied. So there's kind of a hybrid between what was the Soviet Union, the inherent corruption therein, and some capitalist um, interaction owned by oligarchs. So yeah. it's uh, it's a totalitarian government for sure, and it's that latter aspect that has always been the most dangerous. And so for all practical effects, the Russia has 
the same types of dangers that the Soviet Union did relative to the rest of the world. And China's never changed. They've just gotten bigger and bigger and more powerful. Yeah, let's draw in one other organization with this, with China, and that's the WHO, because they have been running cover for the Chinese government now uh, since the uh, COVID-19 virus really uh, got outside of of their boundaries. And uh, they've been trying to cover up for them. Uh, Is it time for America to say we need to something needs to be done about uh, the World Health Organization? It's an interesting thought, and I will concede I'm no expert on that. So I don't want to speak too deeply into an issue that I have yet to fully investigate. But I am skeptical of a lot of these organizations that start with the word world. Now, not from the claim that I think some sort of um, uh, you know, black helicopter crew is going to show up in the background uh, or the backyard, I should say, of the United States, but uh-huh. because a lot of the, these world organizations are run by governments or individuals from governments, from clearly, from states, by states I mean uh, countries, that are clearly antithetical to the United States. Sure. Well, I'm not interested in that, right? That reminds me of much of the operation of the U.N., they much of what they do is clearly against our interests by our i mean of course the united states notwithstanding that we fund the vast majority of their operations and i'm just tired of it i'm just tired of it yeah and we keep giving them huge amounts of money we give huge amounts of money to the world health organization and we give obscenely amounts of money to the uh, United Nations. It's down some, but uh, at one time, I mean, it was, if it weren't for us, they would have had to shutter the, the doors. I was in Israel once on a congressional delegation, and we met with the, off, the USAID office, which is a subsidiary of the Department of State, which is inherently leftist regardless of who's in office. And the political appointee was out of the office. And so we met with the next person down who was a bureau hack. And there was some issue. And we met in the Jerusalem area and the USAID office in that location was not designed to help Israel. It was designed to help the Palestinians. Now, mind you, I don't mind helping any group of people. I mind helping corrupt governments. So they had built some sort of community center, and it was named after a terrorist. There was no dispute that it was named after a terrorist, and this became controversial, and they corrected it. They changed the name. And I said to this bureau hack, well, why did you name it after a terrorist? And she said, oh, well, you know, that was a mistake. But, you know, one person's terrorist is another person's freedom fighter. Boy, I've heard that too many times. Right? And this is yeah. a, comment, a comment from a government official, U.S. government official. And I looked at her, I leaned forward in my chair, and I said, yes, but for me, she's a terrorist. Meaning, I'm not a value relativist. He, rather, was a terrorist. Don't tell me that someone else doesn't, doesn't think he's a terrorist. I get that. 
But for me, and by the way, all sound-thinking Americans, he's a terrorist. So stop being so buried in your leftist ideology of value relativism and taking your lead from countries that are not your employer, meaning from other countries whose views are antithetical to the United States. And that's what she was doing. She was reflecting the the comments of the Palestinian Authority and other anti-American groups, even though she was funded by the United States. And that, I relate that directly to your comment about the World Health Organization. We need to be cautious when these groups are so anti-American. That's not the threat. Let me... Let me be clear, not to say that the WHO isn't doing important things, particularly now, but we just need to be cautious. All right. Let's take a break. We're uh, we're late. Need to get one in. Traffic and weather, I know you need to know what that is if you're on your way to work right now at 8 o'clock, so let's get to it. It's the Dave Ellswick Show. Robert Steinbach, my guest right now. We've got more things to talk about that I think you're going to find to be very interesting. Stick around to the Dave Ellswick Show, 101.1 FM. The answer. All right, back, and uh, we've got Rush Limbaugh coming up. We want to get to him on time, so hang in there with us. We're about a minute away. Robert Steinbach will be back with us after uh, the break at the bottom of the hour. We went a little late there in the first uh, half hour, but a lot of important things to say about uh, China, uh, the World Health Organization, the U.N., and a whole lot of international organizations, which are not let me highlight not, you know, put, put uh, you know, quotation marks around it and make it in boldface, not friends of the United States. Although uh, if it weren't for the United States, they wouldn't be able to to do what they do because they wouldn't have the necessary money. But we got enough lefties still in the United States that they can keep funneling the funds to uh, those leftist organizations. When we come back, I want to talk about guns. You know, one of my favorite topics, we're going to talk about guns when we come back and uh, the perception by a lot of people that when the uh, COVID-19 really got going, that we might see social upheaval. I think that we have seen some social upheaval. We'll talk about it. That's all coming your way right after Rush. He's coming up now here on 101.1 FM, The Answer. All right, we continue on the Dave Ellswick Show. Robert Steinbach is our guest. And, Robert, I wanted to uh, talk with you about guns. You sent me another New York Times article, and I I get a kick out of it because it's as if they're surprised that this happened. Uh, I'm not surprised at all. In fact, you and I talked about this several weeks before, uh, you know, the the uh, COVID-19 was a real big news story. And I said, we're going to find out how tight our societies really are and our culture is, is going to be as as this uh, starts marching across the United States. But uh, I will tell you, I'm really excited. I don't know if you've seen it or not, but they now have an AR-15-12 gauge. Have you seen that? Oh, yes, for some time, in fact. Really? Has it been around that long? Oh, I don't know how long that long means, but yes, it's been around for a while. They make it, in fact, in in a couple of variations, perhaps many more, but specifically you can get it with a conventional loading or you can get it with a magazine load, although I'm a little skeptical of how smoothly the magazine load actually operates. I haven't tried it, though. 
I want to I want to get one and then I'll, I'll I'll put in the the five or six whatever it holds and probably five right. and then uh, I I want to get one of those drums that holds twenty five because right, I right. I well here's what I see as far as the air 15, 12 gauge and and I'm going to put a pistol grip on it because. Putting a pistol grip on it is, you know, next to just sawing the barrel off, basically. And people say, well, why do you want to do that, Dave? Well, let me try to explain this. Okay, let's say I have a 12-gauge in my, my hands, and I've heard a noise in my house. If I'm going to go down a hallway and i got to come out of the bedroom, go down a hallway or whatever, that barrel is going to precede me probably by about 6 to 10 inches. Well, I don't want to give the bad guy the opportunity to be able to reach out, grab the barrel, and pull on that gun and maybe pull it out of my hands. So by having taking the stock off, putting the handle grip on, I take that extra barrel length off, and it comes back to just beyond uh, the pump where my hand uh, is. And, yes, I'm old school. I want the pump. I don't want the semi-automatic because guess what? Uh, people that... To, you know, burglarize homes and want to do dastardly things, they know the sound of chunk, chunk. They know that sound. And uh, most yeah. times they don't even want it. They don't even want to deal with it. So uh, I'm going to go with a hand grip on mind. And uh, I've also heard that if you use a hand grip, from, I heard this from a reliable source, and uh, they told me that uh, you can get by carrying that like a pistol. Did you know that? Well, um, there's a couple of things. First, let me correct one thing. Actually, I don't think the AR-15 version of the shotgun comes with a conventional load, only the magazine. It's the 870 that I was thinking about regarding those okay. dual options. But in any event, you, uh, I think what you might be speaking about is uh, the, or are the duckbill shotguns, which have no stock, and they're not considered rifles, and as a consequence, the barrel can be shorter. You can buy them in any sports store. You can go to the sports academy, etc. Academy Sports, whatever it is. Yep. And yep. Uh, they have no stock. They just have a handle uh, that looks like a, a duck head. Did I say duck bill? I meant duck head. Uh, yep. And those are shorter barreled because they're considered something along the lines of, quote, other uh, end quote, in terms of the law regarding guns. And so there's no length requirement. And a lot of people like them because they serve exactly exactly the issues that you raise, which is the difficulty of maneuvering, particularly indoors, with a longer uh, rifle or shotgun. Yeah, that's, longer, that's something, um, something to take yeah. into consideration. And do you agree with me better to have the pump shotgun versus the, uh, the semi-automatic, or are you a semi-automatic guy? Uh, no, I agree with you, although perhaps for a somewhat different reason. I agree the sound is important, but the problem with the semi-automatic is if it jams, uh, unless you have the – there's one Benelli, I forget which model, uh, that has both pump and semi-automatic. Maybe there are a few other brands out there, but not the main brand. Uh, if, it, if a semi-automatic jams, you've got to take it apart, basically, to unjam it. Uh, now, if you have the dual function like the Benelli, that particular Benelli, I think it's like the M3, but I'm not sure. Then you can clear that jam. But I don't want to be in a situation where you can't clear a jam. You know, that's a problem with pup guns as well. It's a very interesting design for regular yeah. uh, guns, but they're also for shotguns. But if they jam, it's really hard to clear them. Okay. Well, enough. We'll get Ed Monk on sometime with us, and we'll talk guns. How's that sound? Sounds great. 
It's always fun to have Ed on to talk guns. He's great. He knows he's he knows great. what he's talking about, man. Well, he's uh, we want an expert. Yeah, he really is. And so let, let's talk about that. Uh, this last month, March, was the second highest ever for gun sales. The highest month was basically the day after uh, Barack Obama was reelected to office and everybody was really uh, on the on edge that he was going to try to get with the Democrats and and pass some really draconian uh uh, gun laws, but what everybody forgot is that in his second uh, four years, he didn't have, uh, you know, the the House and the Senate behind him, and uh, because of that, he wasn't able to push forth those type of big ticket items uh, in the way that we like to talk about them. So they, it never materialized. However, when you have something like is going on right now, and and I'm going to tell you, I think a lot of why this hasn't happened, that the that society hasn't crumbled even more around us is because of the way the president has handled this, along with the vice president and his his uh, people that know what they're talking about and doing about coronavirus is, um, you know, that because uh, we saw a little bit of it. When everybody went nuts and bought up all the toilet paper and cleared out the aisles in the grocery stores, we had all that panic buying. But that's as far as it went. I was really surprised we didn't see runs on banks and things of that nature. I'm just telling you, I think that we dodged a bullet at that point. What do you think? And I think it's because of how the president uh, handled this whole mess. Well, I think that... We, as you aptly point out, we saw a mix of kind of panic behavior and non-panic behavior, and uh, I'm glad that it wasn't worse. But as the article I sent you highlights, they they literally uh, cite to a law professor as an expert on the following. By the way, as much as I like to claim that law professors. Uh, being one myself, of course, are experts on everything. I don't know, and I'm mocking, right? Uh, I don't know if you need a law professor to come up with the expert view of, uh, quote, people may have an anxiety about protecting themselves if the organs of, of state, meaning the organs of government, are starting to erode, end quote, and therefore are buying guns. So they get this expert to explain to the New York Times uh, coastal elites why people are going out to buy guns. What a crazy idea, after all. And the answer is because they are afraid that government and society is going to break down to some extent. By the way, it's not binary, not all or nothing. And that's a point that you have just brought out, which is we didn't have runs on banks, but we had runs on toilet paper. Yeah, because there's some breakdown in societal behavior, but not entire breakdown. And so when people see that, they say, listen, I don't know what's going to happen next. I should have a gun. Yeah, well, I'm a let's, surprised let's, that they haven't thought that before. But nonetheless, let's think, let's think about that. Let's think about that just for a second, because during this whole uh, uh, COVID-19 event that's going on, what has happened? Police officers have been told they're only going to like murders and things of that nature. They're not showing up for domestic violence even. Mm-hmm. You know, they're they're going to cut back on what they report and what they respond to. And when you hear that, you think about, well, if they're not going to be out doing their job, who's going to protect me? Well, you know, 
I better protect myself. And so gun sales spike. Well, that's exactly right. And I'll tell you a funny story. The other day, someone came knocking on my door. And it turns out it was from someone from down the block for some inane reason. And that's all sort of local you know, nonsense. But I looked at her and I said, and I didn't know her. And I said, yes. And she sort of looked at me like I should open the door so we can have a conversation. I've got a window on my front door. And I said, oh, that door's not, I'm not opening that door. Are you nuts? No, I didn't, I didn't think she was going to attack me, to be clear. I, I'm not in her, you know, social distancing is my point. But the point is that people, there are people out there who are unaware of what's going on. They're unaware of their own personal safety. This, uh, <coughs> excuse me, this is an example of a person being unaware of personal safety in terms of coronavirus. She had no idea whether or not I had it. But then there are other people who are unaware of the safety uh, risks that are presented when the police are reducing their intervention. And then there are many other people like those in the article that are referenced to say, wait a second, if the police are slowing down their interaction, and by the way, I don't blame them, they don't want to catch coronavirus, then I need to be responsible for myself. This is a conservative value, right? You need to have some self-responsibility. You can't rely on the state to do everything for you. And those people who think that the state will protect them from all things are the very ones that are going to be harmed the most. Yeah, I, I you know, I'm reading this article as you're speaking, and this guy from Georgia State, the, uh, uh, the law professor, expert. yeah, the so-called expert, but uh, he's talking about, he, and he makes the point that I was making in just a moment ago, and that as, as people are nervous that there's a certain amount of civil disorder that might come if huge numbers of people are sick and a huge number of institutions are not operating normally, i.e., the police. And if, if they're not operating normally, it's going to make uh, some people nervous. I, there are some people that would never touch a gun. Uh, God forbid that they would ever think about having a gun to protect themselves. But, uh, there, you know, there are those people out there. I thought uh, interesting when they were talking in this article about some of the gun-related incidents, uh, you had a man pointing a gun at two women wearing medical masks and gloves because he feared he might contract the virus. And, uh, you know, that's not too far of a, of a thought process. If you, I just want people to think real quickly about movies that have been out in the last decade dealing with pandemic behavior like this and how, you know, people are like, don't even come near me. If you look like you're sick or even if you're doing things to keep you from passing the sickness on, stay away from me. And if I got to use a gun pointed at you to make you keep your social distancing, I will do so. Dave, what, the, the comment that you repeated from the article, I think, is most interesting because it's another example of the New York Times anti-conservative bias because they cherry pick two or three examples of oh, someone yeah. taking a taking a gun, right, and using it for an untoward reason. Well, therefore, all guns are bad, and anybody who owns a gun is bad, and you shouldn't go out and buy a gun, suggests the New York Times. I don't read articles about cars where some guy rode down the wrong side of a highway or somebody drove into a shopping mall or ran someone off the road. These things happen uh, fairly often, but 
the New York Times doesn't have an anti-car agenda the same way they have an anti-gun agenda. So these individual examples, these single data points, which don't present any trend, don't show anything other than, of course, the New York Times' own inherent anti-gun bias. All right, we got to get a break. It's 12 minutes to 8. We're going to carry this conversation on uh, to the the end of this uh, hour until 8 o'clock. If you want to get involved in it, 823-0965 is our local number. 823-0965. Just reading a little piece in here, uh, you know that California, for instance, and some other states uh, told gun stores to close, and then they reopened them up after people raised uh, such so much of a clatter. Advocates for stricter safety measures argue that the surge in purchases could pose a safety threat if buyers aren't trained properly, new guns aren't store, stored safely, and background checks aren't completed. That's how what the left says. Okay, so we're going to talk about all of that in just a moment here on the Dave Ellswick Show. Remember, you want to get involved in the conversation, 823-0965. It's uh, about 11 minutes until 8 o'clock. If you've got to be at work at 8, you might want to step on the gas a little bit more. 59 degrees in Little Rock. It's 58 in Pine Bluff, 60 in Conway, 57 in Cabot. And it's the Dave Ellswick Show on 101.1 FM, The Answer. All right, just, uh, oops, let me get my microphone up where you can hear me. Uh, while we were taking that break, I have to admit what I was doing was going uh, online and checking out prices for AR-15 12-gauges, uh, Robert. I'm, I'm, I'm telling you. How much I'm are uh, they're looking to be about uh, four seventy-five, and you can go up over a thousand if you want to. Sure. But uh, sure. I think if you got probably if you spend a little over five hundred to six hundred dollars, you can get a really reliable one. So mm-hmm. it's something that I'll be uh, looking into. You know, do that. Absolutely. Like Here's my key. I, I mean, you've heard the old the old terminology, street sweeper, right? Yes. That was okay. a particular model. That was the, it was a shotgun that had that uh, round drum um, it's magazine a, it's on a, it. It's a, it, it is a. It was made specifically for uh, police and for military operations, and uh, I mean the uh, the military one carried uh, as high as a uh, seventy-five round load. You can only imagine how heavy it was when it was fully right. loaded. But the bottom line is, if you can almost rapid fire that thing. Uh, you're going to be able to do a lot of damage and put up, uh, put some suppressive firepower downrange uh, to protect people behind you. And I just think that, uh, you know, uh, if I can get one that carries 25 rounds and you're in your home, I've got the ultimate home defense weapon. That's just the way I look at that one. I mean, that's that's what I'm looking for. And uh, now with that, that special stock that you were talking about where they can you can uh, get it for uh, and make it into uh, a handgun specifically uh, makes sense to carry it in your car. In fact, the same person who told me about the AR-12 uh, and uh, what we've been talking about told me that and said, he carries one in his car. He said uh, he doesn't want to end up in a gunfight with the, literally the, a version of having a pocket knife. And I can understand what he's saying. Sure. 
Well, that, that's the point is, regardless of what you choose, meaning which particular platform you choose, we, you and I, your listeners, are people who not only believe in the Second Amendment and the state version thereof, meaning the right to bear arms, I would venture that virtually all or all of your listeners, and I know you and I, believe that actually exercising that right is important for our own personal safety. We don't seek to impose that as an obligation on anybody. You don't want to carry a gun, knock yourself out. Don't carry a gun. But if you want to carry a gun, then obviously do so legally. Uh, And people like you and I believe that's sound individual protection policy. And that's why I've spoken many times on your show about when I've seen incidents where places that shouldn't be restricting individuals with guns, like, for example, the gun shows on state property, somehow the gun shows are changing state law or trying to. We're going to fix that, by the way, Dave. We're going to clear clarify that. Uh, tell people they can't carry guns in the gun show. By the way, did I mention it's a gun show? <laughs> so the hypocrisy yeah. is dripping, isn't it? Yes, it is, and I. But I can under. I mean, I understand exactly what you're saying. Uh, by the way, before we leave, uh, let me just ask Heidi. Heidi, that uh, clip that we got from Jim Cramer is it less than three minutes long? It's thirty-five seconds, Dave. Oh, good. It's thirty-five seconds, and we can get in. Jim Cramer on Squawk Box. Uh, today is the first day for uh, small businesses. You can begin asking for those small business uh, administration grants for your particular business. And here's what Jim Cramer had to say about them. Everybody's going to apply tomorrow. I mean, the, 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 it's so generous. I've got to tell you, I mean, you, you're, you're eight weeks. If you stay open, you get a check back for what you pay for the employees, but also for a lot of your overhead. So, I mean, this is a program that if it's executed will be, I'm not, nothing's a savior because you need to have customers. But you will be able to, in uh, in very short order, according to Secretary Mnuchin, get this money back and the banks have to be ready for it. I think it is, if there's anything that's going to tide us over, it is is this uh, that particular aspect because 85 percent of america really works for small medium-sized business okay now i wanted to bring that up just because today if you own a small business the lifeline has hit the water and now's the time for you to grab the ring in the water and do what you need to do and the government is going to help you stay in business while we get over this major hurdle of uh, COVID-19. This was a great move by the Congress to do what they've done. And you're not going to, whatever money you spend for uh, employees and overhead and the different things that they say it's good for, you don't have to pay it back. It's a grant. It's not a loan. It's a grant. So keep that in mind if you're a small business owner out there uh, today. And uh, I know that there there's some people say, well, I don't believe in that and I'm not going to take it. Well, that's up to you. Uh, it is there if uh, a business needs it to stay in business. I've heard from business owners that say just the opposite thing. God, thank God that the government's doing this or I would not be able to stay in business. All right, so uh, that's good news. I try to get some good news in today as well, Robert. When we come back, and uh, when we come back, let's talk about Congress 
is getting is going to put their hands. The Democrats are going to try to muck up the process if we if we allow it. Uh, we'll talk about how they're trying to get involved in the COVID-19 situation and uh, what Adam Schiff's doing, what Pelosi's doing, and how uh, Congress is moving to oversee Trump's uh, coronavirus response. That's all coming up when we return here on the Dave Ellswick Show. Good possibility that Chris Corbett might be with us in the next hour. I've uh, extended the invitation. I haven't heard from him yet, so we'll keep our our fingers crossed. He'll be with us as all as well. But we'll hear from Robert again and myself when we return on the Dave Ellswick Show. Dave Ellswick show as we move into the eight o'clock hour, six after uh, Chris Corbett. I don't think is going to be able to join us. Uh, I uh, left him a voicemail. He hasn't responded, nor did he respond to my text. So, you know, he may be uh, out of state or um, knowing Chris, he might be in his, uh, you know, he might be in his uh, shelter right now with all of the uh, materials that he's been prepping over the years and hunkering down right now, hunkering in place, as I like to say, being hip. By the way, uh, I did a little looking, uh, Rob, Robert, in an academy of, uh, academy sports. I found the JTS 12 gauge has really good reviews of it. It's got a 4.5 out of 5 stars, uh, 400 bucks. That's not bad. And that's a semi-automatic, by the way. So I don't know what a pump would run. I would think it would be a little less than that. Oh, wait, wait. That's for the AR style? Yeah, AR 12. And that's a se- uh, oh right because I it can't have a pump right because where are you going to put the pump? I don't think they yeah. make the AR style with a pump. Well, we'll have I'll have to check it out and see. If it doesn't, then I'll just have to learn how to to hold my hold my thoughts and use a semi-automatic and and wish for the best. <laughs> Prepare right. for the right. worst and exactly. wish for the best. All right, yeah, because that's you know I get a I get a lot of uh, grief from Jan Morgan about how I carry a revolver in my in my car, and like I tell her, and, and she says, "Well, Dave, you know the chances of a semi-automatic to jam are significantly small now." And I said, "Yeah, it's that small word that you keep using that's got me convinced I still need to have a revolver." There you go. So typically now, you know, going to my car can be kind of like an Easter egg hunt when they ask you about guns. And I say yes, because I probably have maybe as many as four in my car. Typically, the fewest I'll have is two. That's just the way it is. And you now right there in my car, I'll let people know because, you know, if you're listening, you say, well, I'll hold him up. Uh, that wouldn't be a good idea. I'm just telling you, that would not be a good idea. All right. Nine minutes after after eight. I'm just I'm just 
you know, I'm not not uh, trying to be a bully or anything. It's just I believe in self-defense. And I believe if you open my door to my car and I've got the doors locked and so you smash my window, you're up to no good. That's the way well, I look no at it. How about, about you? That, right? There's no question about yeah. that. Well, I would think that that's the way we would all feel about it as far uh, on all of that. So uh, that's the way it, it, it seems to go. But, you know, enough about that. Let's uh, let's move on because the Democrats are at it again. Pelosi and Schiff and uh, those on the left, uh, I don't even, look, I typically don't even mention Maxine Waters anymore because I, I don't see how, or Sheila Jackson, because I don't see how anybody, seriously, anybody who has a modicum of common sense could t- t- uh, take either one of those people seriously, but they're in the mix of this too. Uh, and how they want to watch what the president's doing. They want to have more oversight by Congress. In other words, what they're saying is instead of being able to react as quickly as possible, we want to slow down our reactionary time and let people die. That's how I read what they're saying. What do you say? Something similar, but perhaps slightly different, which is I don't I don't believe them, Dave. Right. I have no problem with the notion of oversight. The, the, that's why we have co-equal branches of government with different responsibilities, which overlap. In other words, they can't operate on their own entirely. And so legislative oversight, particularly given the fact that I worked in the United States Senate as a as a counsel. Uh, that I believe in the notion of legislative oversight. But I simply have no faith that what they're talking about now, uh, given the history that we've seen with the impeachment and impeachment-like process, is in any way legitimate. It's just another effort to start the let's get rid of Trump uh, train, as they have done throughout his presidency. That's the problem. It's equivalent, I posted on Twitter at some point point back, an article or an op-ed, uh, uh, the opinion piece from the New York Times editorial page, and they said, we're against the um, uh, Electoral College. And I said, look, you can make a, a legitimate argument opposing the Electoral College, and you certainly can make a legitimate argument in favor of the Electoral College. I don't think either one is uh, tinfoil hat-wearing province. But I have no confidence that when the New York Times makes that argument these days that they're doing so other than for political motives. So the author of the opinion piece writes me on Twitter and says, well, we've always been against the Electoral College. So I did a quick search, and sure enough, there was an article in which the New York Times was for the Electoral College during the Bush-Gore Fight, and that would be a pro-Bush position at the time. So, he, so I point that out. He goes, "Oh, well, yeah, that's right." But that was pro-Bush, so that doesn't show any bias. And my and I responded <laughs> by saying, "Yes, I agree. It doesn't show any pro-liberal bias because that was before the New York Times decided to be entirely anti-Trump. It's not anti-conservative, by the way. It's even more than that. It's anti-Trump." So back then, they would take a view that might be pro-conservative, pro-liberal, more pro-liberal than pro-conservative. We knew they had a generally 
left-leaning bent, but they weren't just decidedly biased. And now they're decidedly biased. So I point all that out to say, first, your claim that the New York Times always supported ending the Electoral College is decidedly false. Nice try. And the fact that they did so in a way that supported President Bush rather than the Democrat doesn't change that now the New York Times is decidedly anti-Trump. And while your argument against the Electoral College may be not a laughable argument, it's certainly, I am skeptical of your motives because the New York Times is clearly anti-Trump. That's when he stopped responding. I mean, he said, thank you, but that was the end of the discussion. (laughs) You're making too much sense for him there, Robert. Well, that's the problem, right? That's the problem. Logic got in the way of his position, and therefore he decided no longer to argue. Yeah, it hurt his feelings. I mean, I got my shirt on today. It says, says, facts don't care about your feelings. that's, That's right. That's the bottom line. Facts don't care about that. All right, let's get a break. we got to get traffic, get weather in. Robert Steinbach with me until the end of the hour here on the Dave Ellswick Show. want to come back and talk more about uh, Congress, especially over in the House uh, that is controlled by the Democrats, getting involved with this COVID-19 uh, fight and uh, and. What they're saying, you got to read between the lines, and what they're saying is, I believe, dangerous. Uh, if you're worried about this meltdown with the stock market, like a lot of people are, I've got some good news for you. In fact, it's great news. According to Forbes, this could be a huge opportunity right now uh, to save big, big money on taxes and retirement. That's right. Learn how with a free tax reduction analysis. Now, you don't have to go to an office for this. All you got to do is get on your phone or or get on your laptop or even on your phone and do a video conference uh, with David Lucas and David Lucas Financial right here in Little Rock. If you've saved more than $400,000, be one of the first 10 callers right now to schedule your free analysis now at 501 222 3315. Uh, This big drop in the stock market could be your window of opportunity to save tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars uh, in taxes over the course of your retirement. Learn how. You want to learn this. So call today, 501-222-3315, 2-33-15. More here on the Dave Ellswick Show when we come back. Talk more about Congress trying to get involved in the uh, COVID-19 uh, fight. And I'll tell you why I think Congress is wanting to do it. I think there's two main reasons. I'll explain them to you. See what Robert thinks about them. When we come back on the Dave Ellswick Show, now your traffic and weather. We continue here on the Dave Ellswick Show. We're about 20 minutes after 8. Temperatures around the area, about 60 degrees right now in Little Rock. Same in Conway. uh, A little chillier in Cabot at 58. Pine Bluff, 58. Hot Springs, 57. Today, uh, look for rain throughout the day 
on and off. It's not going to be a continuous type of rain. Some thunderstorms in the area. I had looked at the color radar earlier. There were some big areas of yellow and red up to the uh, northwest of us moving slowly, dropping down across the state. And for your weekend, tomorrow it's going to be wet, showers and thunderstorms, high of 62. And then for your Sunday, uh, rain will be out of the forecast, but still mostly cloudy skies and uh, a high of 69 degrees. All right, with me, Robert Steinbach. And, uh, Robert, we wanted to talk a little bit more uh, dealing with this whole thing of Congress. And, look, one of Congress's main duty is to uh, oversee these programs that uh, they pass and that they give, you know, uh, power to the executive branch because we have three co-equal branches, each overseeing the other branches so that nobody can take advantage of uh, anybody, supposedly. And um, so uh, the the Congress, wanting to see they want to have some oversight, makes sense to me on a a constitutional type of situation. However, uh, in this instance, what is being said is, let me just, well, let me just read the first Uh, paragraph of this story that you sent me. Speaker Nancy Pelosi moving aggressively to uh, scrutinize the Trump administration's handling of the coronavirus pandemic said uh, yesterday that she would seek to create a special bipartisan committee to oversee all aspects of the government's response, including how it distributes more than $2 trillion in emergency aid. Now, that's important, okay, because you got $2 trillion, you know, the Congress should be involved in it. However, it's the part that came before where she said she wants a bipartisan committee. It will be a bipartisan committee. It's going to have Republicans on it, but not enough Republicans override the Democrats at all or even to tie up the vote uh, to oversee all aspects. Now, I got a little bit of problem with all aspects because they're not giving, getting the exact information that the president is get, getting, being a wartime president right now, fighting our enemy, which is uh, out there and is uh, invisible. Our president has got to have the ability to move fast, move nimble, to nip some things in the bud. And when you get other people and you get uh, these committees involved, they can slow that down to such an extent that people will die because things got slowed down. That's my first point. What do you think about that point? Well, that's some oversight. If it, whenever you have oversight, it's likely to cause some delay. And we need to balance that with the need for efficiency in dealing with a pandemic such as this. But my critique is broader, which is I don't believe that a good portion of this alleged oversight is for the purposes of oversight at all. I think it's continuing the pattern that we've seen from Pelosi and others of harassment of the president. The clearest example, of course, was the impeachment nonsense. And I say that clearly, that the impeachment was a sham. 
And, of course, the president won it in the end. And as we know, Pelosi says, well, impeachment's forever, which is disingenuous. But moreover, the, the apt response is, so is acquittal. That's correct. So uh, I think that this is much like I critiqued the New York Times for their anti-Trump bias. I believe this behavior is reflective of Pelosi's and other leftists' goal of using every mechanism they can to eject the president, regardless of the legitimacy of that mechanism. So I simply don't trust it. That's the problem. The problem is that oversight is legitimate, but the abuse of oversight is not. And I don't trust people like Pelosi not to abuse it at this juncture. Okay, so basically we're saying the exact same thing, okay? Mm, Uh, I don't trust them as well. No way, shape, or form. And here's the other thing I don't trust. They're not in Washington. These committees won't be in Washington. They're spread out all over the United States. Uh, You know, how fast is that going to move? That's my problem with all of this. Uh, You know, I just think you're setting yourself up for some real problems. And then what happens is that you get a whole lot of finger pointing. And uh, now the partisanship really kicks in heavy. And it's going to be partisan anyway just because uh, these uh, this high uh, minority group within the Democratic Party is going to do everything they can to short circuit what this president wants to do. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's the concern, right? That's the concern, is that this is not motivated by appropriate checks and balances. <clears throat> Excuse me. This is motivated by politics. Yeah. At some point. And, and, and it right? is. Yeah. Well, there you go. Yeah, I mean, seriously, they gave the president the ability uh, to uh, hand out this money. I mean, uh, Mnuchin is out give, telling people now within two weeks you're going to have your check. If you're, if you're a, a citizen, you get your $1,200 check. If you're a couple, you file jointly, you're going to get $2,400. That's going to be coming into your bank account if you've got direct deposit. You've got uh, the, the SBA announcing today that they're ready to start handing out these they're calling them loans, but in fact, if you follow the rules, it's a grant uh, for over three months, or almost four months, in fact, that will help uh, small businesses stay in business. Uh, it doesn't let them just put the money in their savings account or anything like that. They're going to have to help their workers, and then uh, the government knows that they're going to have to pay you know, uh, basic uh, Uh, mortgages and things of that nature for their businesses, and that's what this money is going to be used for. And hopefully we get to the other side of the COVID-19, we'll still have an American economy to fall back on. Uh, Mm -hmm. That's what Kramer was talking about, uh, that that we played just before the the top of the hour. Uh, And he thinks, as do most economists, that this is a, 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 a good way of going about doing this. Uh, I know there's a lot of people say, well, Dave, you didn't think that at this time or that time. You said the government shouldn't bail out businesses. This is a different time. This is like World War II. This is like we're fighting the Nazis or the Germans, uh, the Nazis or the Japanese, and we just can't see them. I mean, that's what we're up against right now, and we got to take care of it. 
Well, also, there's another point, economic point, that is, Dave, that much of this, not all, but much of this impact on the economy is a consequence of direct government intervention in shutting down businesses. And I'm not complaining about that. But so this is not propping up a business that isn't doing well because of some outside event. In other words, much of the loss is not because people are sick. Much of the loss is because the government said, in order to prevent other people from getting sick, you need to shutter your business for some time. So that's conceptually different. When the government causes a harm, no doubt it has responsibility for covering some of that harm. I agree with you wholeheartedly. We've talked about this uh, in the past. These businesses, through no fault of their own, are in a very precarious situation. And it's, uh, thank God, we have such a strong economy that we have uh, 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 an economy that can support what uh, is just about ready to be done. Uh, We're nowhere near, and I want people to remember this, we're nowhere near the percent of GDP that we were in World War II. Uh, However, this is uh, still a war that's going on, and we're going to, I think they said maybe 22% GDP in World War II was 28% of GDP. Uh, It's a lot of money. It really is. It's a lot of money. But you know what? You want these businesses to be there for people to go back to. It just announced today uh, businesses cut 701,000 jobs. Think about that. Just think about that while we take a break here and listen to Sean Hannity. 701,000 employed individuals right now have found themselves unemployed. More coming your way when we come back. Robert Steinbeck and I will uh, wrap it up coming up uh, when we return. But right now, Sean Hannity has his morning minute with you. Let's give that to him at 101.1 FM, The Answer. All right, uh, Joel over at PI Roofing Home Solutions wants you to remember that they're not just a roofing company. They're also a general contractor. They've got a contractor's license in Arkansas, Louisiana, and Oklahoma, so they can hire additional contractors for their specific trade to work on uh, customers' property as needed. If you'll contact them today at piroofing.com, they can handle all of your commercial and residential roofing needs, even if you have an insurance claim. They're also able to help the customer and adjuster understand the complexity of the job scope needed to put the insured property uh, back into a pre-loss condition without, and in parentheses, because you'll get this a lot of time from uh, less reputable uh, roofers, adjusting the claim. There's times that people will tell you, I can do this and I can do that, and I'm going to save you money uh, when, in fact, what they're doing is illegal. Uh, Because many times the adjuster is not able to spend the amount of time needed to investigate the loss through enough to catch everything damaged and or needed to be done for the time allocated to the customer's uh, property. And PI Roofing Home Solutions is able to spend more time with you once you know you're agreed upon to be their customer to perform destructive investigation to verify a complete job scope and code compliance issue that may arise 
from that incident. So keep in mind, you want to hire PI Roofing and Home Solutions today and get in the front of the line. Go to piroofing.com or call 501-707-3551. I've used PI Roofing several times. They do a great uh, job. So that is uh, what they're trying to get done for you. All right, back here on the Dave Ellswick Show, we move back into our conversation. We're having about how the Democrats, how Nancy Pelosi uh, is really trying to get involved in this whole uh, Corona uh, nine, uh, COVID-19 uh, type situation. And when you think about people are going to be all over the United States, they're going to have to do this in a way uh, that it's uh, going to be slowed down because of that. When you're going to have, you know, you, you hear Pelosi say things like, well, look, what we really want to do is to be able uh, to get you to uh, to ask the president to show us uh, different things, different, uh, you know, forms and, and things of that nature. Sounds like there's more going on here than general oversight of uh, how the money is uh, going to be spent. For instance, uh, Pelosi said the panel would have subpoena power, meaning it could demand testimony and documents from the Trump administration. You know, here's my whole thing. If you're trying to help, why in God's name are you asking for subpoena power? What what are you asking for to get uh, documents from the Trump administration? This sounds like we're going back into, you know, Adam Schiff impeachment uh, uh, territory. I just I'm just really concerned about how I see this being arranged, Robert. And I'm just kind of reading between the lines here. And it sure as heck doesn't sound good. Well, that's what we talked about before the break, right, Dave? Uh, these mechanisms exist. We recognize the need excuse me, for oversight of the various branches of federal and the state government. But we also have seen what has transpired with the Congress relative to the president in the last three years. And we have grown appropriately skeptical of their behavior. And now, after passing the stimulus bill that still has too much pork in it for, amongst other things, elitists that want to go to the Kennedy Center. I don't mean to suggest that everybody who goes to the Kennedy Center is an elitist, nor that everybody who works there is an elitist. But nonetheless, it is a luxury provided for largely the rich, not the poor. Let's face it. And so... Uh, we are spending $25 million on that during a time in which we're allocating money that's supposed to go for for dealing with a pandemic. That's an example of pork that need not happen. That's an example of government not acting in the best interests of the people. And I strongly suspect that this latest round uh, claimed by the left for oversight is not for the purposes of legitimate oversight, but is for the purpose of trying to further undermine the president, as the left has been trying to do throughout President Trump's presidency. Yeah, it's just, you know, 
it doesn't smell good to me. You know what I'm saying? There's certain things that as you're being predicted uh, that they want to do, it doesn't smell good, and it and it also doesn't make a whole lot of sense. For instance, they say they want this oversight, and uh, but they want to be able to call witnesses to say, well, we don't think that you spent this money correctly. Well, you know, you're not there in the moment having to make these, uh, you know, snap decisions. You've got the hindsight of 2020 vision at times. Maybe what you need to do is say, after this is all over, once we get through this, then let's go back, put together a bipartisan uh, group of people from the Senate and from the, uh, the, 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 you know, from the House, the Senate, and the president's administration, sit down and look at how we might have done this better. I, could, I can swallow that more than I can swallow what Pelosi's saying here. Yeah, but of course, the problem with that, I put in quotes, uh, for the Democrats is that will be well after the presidential election. And they need to start undermining, in their mind, obviously, the president now, not later. Yeah, I agree. And also, before we go to break, which is coming up here in about two minutes, mm-hmm. help help people understand the difference in this uh bill that just these three phases that just passed of uh, 2.2 trillion dollars and the difference in that and the stimulus package that passed back after 9-11 can you can you kind of bring that into to focus for people a little bit look i think there's some similarities and some critical differences and the biggest difference is one that we discussed uh, prior to the most recent break and that is that much but not all of the economic hardship that is being imposed now on businesses is a function of government intervention. And when government intervenes, there's no doubt that government in the marketplace to cause harm to individuals and individual businesses, there's no doubt that they should be and and in many instances are legally liable to correct that harm. So that is the most significant difference. There certainly is uh, some overlap. That is, some of the harm to businesses today is a function of this um, event out of our control, and that is identical in that respect to what occurred in 9-11 or during 9-11. Yeah, we want to, you know, there's a big difference a huge difference, I, th- I can argue, between 9-11 and what happened and, and people who are saying, you know, we're going to end up going under uh, because what happened when it was because you had, you had done things that made your business precarious in the first place. It's another, and, and that done from an outside source. It's a different argument when you say it was your own government. Uh, who holds the responsibility for telling you to shut your plants down, uh, and you do so, and now you're saying, okay, okay, you told me to do this. Now, how are we going to rearrange the structure of debt and things of that nature so that we can stay in business? I, I can see a huge difference in that. I know there's some people that can't. I see it as, yes, it is, and I'm also seeing that not only are these companies being helped and these small businesses being helped, but the average American is being helped out as 
as well. All right, we've got to get a final break in, and when we come back, uh, I'd like to talk about uh, the whole thing about um, Dr. Uh, Fulci talking about Fauci, that the the Trump administration, right from the get-go, has been fighting uh, to uh, make sure that this uh, COVID-19 was defeated. I mean, the news media and some uh, Democrats as well have tried to set up the straw man argument that uh, he he wasn't uh, he wasn't aware of how serious it was. We'll talk about that, Robert, when we come back here on the Dave Ellswick Show. Right now, we've got uh, traffic. We've got uh, other weather for you. Uh, rainy throughout today with a thunderstorm, high of 68. Over the weekend, a lot of rain, but uh, you get to mostly cloudy skies on Sunday, and it's going to dry out. Temperatures are going to be hovering uh, somewhere around uh, for today, upper 60s, low 60s tomorrow, upper 60s on uh, Sunday. Here's your traffic. Let's get to that right now on the Dave Ellswick Show. All right, back here on the Dave Ellswick Show. Uh, uh, we're down to about nine minutes uh, remaining, and I, I wanted to go back and try to uh, again, defend the president. He doesn't need my defense. I mean, he does a, a, a great job of doing it himself. But um, as a Trump supporter, I take exception to how many people attack this man when I see all the good uh, that that he has done for this country and, and how well he's getting us through this COVID-19 situation as it's uh, happening. Now, one of the attacks that has been going on is that the president heard about this early on and just poo-pooed it as though it was no big deal. Uh, I beg to differ. And uh, uh, is it Fauci? Is that how he pronounces his name again, Robert? Fauci. Dr. Fauci uh, talked about that, and we've got the the, the audio of it. And I'd like like you to listen to this because the media has said – that those two guys don't get along. The president Fauci don't get along. The president doesn't listen to him. He doesn't do what he's told to do and all of that. And uh, hear what Fauci has to say here. The president has his own style that's obvious to the American public. When I speak to him about issues that are substantive, he listens. I think he always understood the seriousness of it. Right now, as the numbers are becoming crystal clear, he himself is articulating an awareness of that seriousness. But from the beginning, he always took it seriously. There you go. That he always, let me, let me highlight that, in bold letters, always took it seriously. Uh, the doctor has spoke out several times about how the media has tried to present that he and the president are like at each other's throats or something. And he said that's not the case at all. And it does no good uh, for the media to try to to try to trump that up. Pardon the the uh, the pun there. But uh, yeah. they have been trying to do it, uh, uh, Robert. And, you know, these these reporters, now I'm going to assume they're American citizens as well. Why would they want to, you know, I, I don't understand how anyone could hate this president so much uh, 
that they would, as a reporter, want to put out a false narrative that could cause more people to die. I don't get it. Well, Dave, the problem is some, not all, some reporters are not reporters. They're advocates dressed up as journalists. And so they want to pursue their political agendas. And that's what they do through the medium of reporting. But, Rob, but Robert, reporting. Robert, doesn't that blow your mind that there's people that are so partisan that they will sacrifice Americans on their altars? A friend of mine many years ago taught me a great response when I, I would say something like, can you believe? And then, you know, we, we describe <laughs> some outrage. And of course, his response was, yes, yes, I can believe it, Dave. It's, it's sad. It's tragic. And I can believe it. That's a realist view of, of the world. Uh, just, I guess even, even as cynical as I am, it's hard for me to wrap my hands around people that are so set in their own power that they're willing to kill their fellow Americans to be able to get it. And, and, and there was an article, it. Dave, there was an article by analogy in the New York Times about how, amongst other places, the, the Columbia Cornell Weill uh, Hospital, Weill is the name of a big donor who, who funded it, its, its expansion, was telling its workers, <clears throat> its healthcare workers, <laughs> that they can't bring their own protective devices, masks, whatever they may be, notwithstanding that the hospital was running short, because they're not approved and we don't know whether they're safe because some pure hack has to tell somebody whether a mask made from paper, made from cloth, made from a bandana is better than no mask at all, right? You need some scientific evaluation of that complicated fact, I say with tongue firmly implanted in cheek. And because it might be scary to some patients if they see some doctors and healthcare or other healthcare workers with protective gear on. That's the analog to, oh, I was offended, so you can't say the truth. I don't care if some patients are scared. Good safety protocols are what must take place. And these bureau hacks, likely not even medically trained, but I'm not sure, these bureau hacks telling healthcare workers who are on the front lines that they can't add layers of protection for their own protection, for their family's protection, and by the way, for their patient's protection, these bureau hacks are interfering with sound medical care. That's what bureau hacks in large medical organizations do. That's what bureau hacks in government do. We need to be ever vigilant to protect ourselves more so than from the coronavirus, from the stupid decisions made by bureau hacks. Yeah, it's it's just scary, man. I, I just it makes me shake my head. Does Ryan Norris from Americans for Prosperity posted today, and he's got to be listening to this show. I'm telling you, Robert, listen to what he said. Here is a short list of all journalists and news sources I trust. The first four are blank. The last one says right. Babylon B. <laughs> yeah. There you go. That's have a good to joke. laugh at like that. It. All right. Great. We're we're done for today, bro. You have a good Absolutely. weekend. All right. Oh, don't forget I'll to watch. Uh, 
Uh, watch Joe Exotic on Netflix this weekend. Have you watched that yet? I have not seen it. Oh, dude, <laughs> you're missing it. You got It's the craziest show you will see in a long, long time. As well as, have you watched Hunters yet? I, yeah, I watched the whole series. It was very good. Oh, that was excellent. That was really good. And season two is going to be even better, it looks like to me. With that said, you have a great day, all right? And thanks for being part Thank of it. You, That's, uh, of course, Robert uh, uh, you know, Steinbach. He's a, a law professor over at UALR Bowen School of Law. His opinions are his and his alone and not necessarily those of the school or uh, the uh, university. I'm out of here. I'm done. Monday, I'm looking at uh, Ken Yang joining us, and we're working on getting Senator Tom Cotton. I don't know if that's going to be possible or not, but it might happen. I'm in touch with the right people. So uh, that's something to look forward to over the weekend. With that all said, you have a great weekend. Uh, the, the Car and Truck Doctors will be back on live on Saturday at 9 a.m. I'll be here with them. We look forward to talking to you. And don't forget that the Car and Truck uh, Car Show from Bumper to Bumper has been canceled. See you on Monday, 6 a.m.